This will be uh, our last part of our series, What's New With You? And tonight we're going to do New Heavens, New Earth, and as an extra bonus, a little bit of New Jerusalem in there. If you have questions tonight along the way, don't hesitate to stop me. Raise your hand. I'll try to see if I don't. Just wave it a little higher or something like that. Might be more questions than normal tonight, but we'll go through these verses together. Let me read Genesis 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said it to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Remember growing up, I don't know if your parents read books to you, little children's books or something, but I'm not sure exactly when, but it was before my time that a lot of the stories be started to end with this famous saying, and it is? No, once upon a hot time, how it starts. How does it end? Not the end. Although that's true. What was it? Yes, and they lived happily ever after. Do you guys read it all? What's going on, Aaron? <laughs> the stories that end that way. Um, sometimes I think we're tempted to think that the story's over and it ends because there's nothing left interesting to stay, say. It's all been said. Not any more drama or tension or no more threats or excitement in the story to be told. I think sometimes that when we look at the new heavens, new earth, it's perhaps tempting to think that when we get to the new heaven and new earth, we're wondering, will there be anything else to look forward to? I mean, is it all over? And I've even had people ask me literally, um, hey, are we really just going to play harps all the time and sit around and sing in church services? I said, no, I'm not sure. Did you get that from the Bible? But I don't think they did. But perhaps they wonder if it's uh, the suspense, the drama, anything. Anything great is still left out there. Um, but when you read the story, and you'll see it tonight, the conclusion of God's story of his glory, you'll find that to think that there's nothing left interesting is the same foolishness that you would say that when you got married, you know, now everything in your marriage is downhill from there. Of course, you wouldn't say that your marriage day was great. You would, but you wouldn't say, wow, 
what could be more exciting now, I think it's all going to be pretty nothing from now on. You wouldn't say that. And anymore that when you get to heaven, um, I should say new heavens and new earth, we are going to eventually perhaps be in heaven um, if Jesus doesn't come first. But we'll be in heaven, but we won't be there forever. Um, a disembodied state um, in heaven is not where it will be eternity. Uh, new heavens and new earth is our final home. And we've looked at a lot of newness in the Bible uh, throughout. And this brings all of it to a climax. Um, so I want to look at it a little bit at a time and go through each verse and take a look at what is, makes the new heaven and earth important reality for us to consider um, if you want to, I'm going to do it just first, all, not to just get it out of the way, but I want to show you a little bit. I always hope tonight that you, as every time, that you learn a little bit about how to study the Bible for yourself. And I know that that's a struggle. And I know that people sometimes don't grow in their Christian life um, because they're a little bewildered about how to read the Bible for themselves and get anything out of it. So let me give you a little cues how you might look at it if you were studying this on your own. You would see the first two verses have... Uh, something in common. They both, both start with, I saw. And if you read Revelation, and uh, you'll find that that's a very common phrase repeated throughout. In fact, there are seven major visions. All of them begin with this statement. And as typical in some of these vision statements of the various things that are portrayed for us in the book of Revelation, I saw is repeatedly followed by, I heard, and this is no different because in verse 3, it says, and I heard. And that's usually how it works for him. For John has a vision, he sees amazing things, and then he hears someone's voice, usually a specific angel announcing things for God. In this text, there seems to be that, and actually, one of the very few times in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation particularly, that God himself actually verbally is recorded and speaking for us. And that is also mentioned in this text. And so you might want to put that in your hat and say, hey, that's important. This is the climactic. This is the seventh vision out of seven. So with all the other ones we're pointing to and building up to eschatologically, this is the one that is all pointing to and pressing toward. So you can see that in the text as well. You could also look on there and you could see in verse 3 and verse 5, it's, those both start with behold uh, 26 times in the book of Revelation. That attention-grabbing little staccato word is used. And surprisingly, if you read carefully, it's amazing to me that the verses 3 and 5 are the ones with the word behold in it. Because if you read after our text, starting in verse 9 and forward, it is a grandiose ex- you know, depiction of what the new heavens and new earth and particularly the new Jerusalem will be like. And all the things that we liked at streets of gold, the gates of pearl, the four, and the walls of jasper, and all those things and, and are mentioned. And you'd think one of those descriptions would get a behold. I mean, don't they deserve it? But that's not where the behold comes in. What he really wants to get your attention is that you're going to be with God and you're going to be with each other forever because that's the whole purpose all the other stuff comparatively is trappings and aesthetics in one sense but the big thing is that we will be restored back to God and so it's good for us because I think verses one and two are kind of like if you put it in camera terminology 
it gives you the wide angle lens, so to speak. It's not a lot of detail, but it it's, shows you the big picture in generic terms of what the new heavens and new earth will be like. And then it fills in some details in the following verses. A little bit of theology tonight. If you want to put it down, you can make your own decisions. I've wrestled with it. I asked Pastor Dave about that in the office today. There are two basic views of how the new heavens and earth come about. One is the replacement model and one is the renewal model. In other words, people think that is it going to be all you know, destroyed and then God will just start over from scratch? Or does he take what he has in hand that's been terribly corrupted and does he reform and refashion it, or as I would say, renew it into what it was always intended to be? Let me give you a couple, not without going too far on this. Second Peter, if you'll turn there, I'll give you the classic text that gives you the dilemma. Second Peter chapter 3 in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And then a little bit later on, it says in verse 12, waiting and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so people use these words. Um, the words dissolve used three different times, verses 10, 11, and 12. And all the other words in there, they would look at that as saying, oh, see, God's wiping out the old creation and exchanging it with a completely new one. And they would use those verbs to try to prove that point. Um, the problem with that view is, as far as I'm concerned, is if you look back in verses 6 and 7 of the same chapter in Second Peter, he uses words like perished, deluged by water. And down in verse number 7, he uses the word destruction. But none of those words mean totally annihilated. None of them do. Especially when it concerns people. And so... He even uses the words in our text, first and former earth. The first and the former, the one that used to be, the old one. And, and so when he describes these things, even though he uses cataclysmic terms, he does not seem to be describing something that's completely obliterated, rather something that's been transformed. I like to think of it, and I'll give you my reasons. I like to think of that God's going to take the, new, the earth and heavens that we now know and renew them. I'll give you my reasons why. Because at the beginning, before there was sin or corruption, God said this, uh, everything is good, very good. And I think God's original creation was perfect. It was right. And then it got corrupted, and you know what happened there. Um, I think there are um, some similarities between the creation of the world and the creation of ourselves. I like to think that God is going to give us a new body. There's a difference between our mortal bodies and our resurrected bodies. There is continuity and there is discontinuity. I think there's some things. I think that my body will be resurrected. I think that it won't be the same, but I think in some ways it will. Um, I was hoping that I would look a little bit better and have more hair, but I don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, but 
um, I think I'm going to be, I know I'm going to be resurrected and it'll be perfect. It'll be, but I think we'll be able to be known. I think for a while, Jesus, after his resurrection, purposely was hidden from people and they didn't see who he was. But I think when God opened their eyes to it, and that's a whole other story, that he, they could see him, who he was, and they could know who he was. And, and I think when you get to heaven, I think people will be able to know who you are. Now, do I know that everyone's going to be 33, the age Jesus, you know, all that whole theory going on? I have no idea how that works. But I do believe that there'll be continuity and there'll be discontinuity. And I, I like to believe that between our mortal bodies and our resurrected bodies, that'll also be true of what God made, not just made us and his creation, but the creation at large. And I like to think that those things are parallel. I also say that between the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem, there's some similarities. Uh, the name has not been changed. So I think there's a continuation. The Jerusalem, they're both called Jerusalem, the old and the new one. I think the one mirrors the other because they both have aspects of the Garden of Eden. So when you look at the first one and you have the second one, the first paradise, I think it's changed, but I think there are some similarities between them. So I would vote for the renewal, but I don't think in the end it's going to matter too much because either way, it's going to be great. You say, why do we want to talk about, why would we want to know all these things? Why does it matter? I mean, is it just a matter, I mean, when you rev... When most people read Revelation, do they not do it out of curiosity about future events? Um, do they not try to read newspaper headings through this text and so forth and so on? I mean, what is it going to be like when we get there? You know, how is it, you know, and, all, and those are all some good questions and they're, you know, fun to think about. But this book has a context. And this context is, if you read chapters two and three of the seven churches, that they were being persecuted. In fact, if you take the late view of when it was written back about 90, uh, in the 90 um, B.C. time, that Diocletian was the, the uh, emperor who brought the first uh, empire-wide persecution. And according to historians, that Christians were being put tar over their body and they would be torched. They would be burned alive to keep parties going at night. Uh, they were thrown to the lions. They were eaten alive. They were skewered literally impaled on stakes. I mean, and on and on, the horrible treatment of Christians. So you could imagine with all that going on and what it cost you, that you needed to have, and why we sang this song tonight, we needed to, they need to have a living hope. They need to know in the face of all of those horrible tragedies and loss. I mean, read the end of Hebrews chapter 10. They were taking their property. They were seizing things from them. I mean, it was a very difficult time to be living toward the end of the first century as a Christian. Um, so they needed this living hope. They needed to see that God was on the throne and that everything one day would be reversed. If you carefully read the Bible, you'll find that in very different times, but the same thing occurs, is that when there are difficult things happening on earth, God starts by saying this, I want you to see at the same time what's happening in heaven. If you read the book of Revelation at the beginning, after the two chapters on the seven churches, chapters four and five are all about the scene in heaven, about the scroll of history and redemption being opened up and there was no one worthy and Jesus is the only one and he opens it and then all the angels and all they're doing and how God is on the throne and he is sovereign. Why would they spend two chapters on that? Because six through 19 is gonna be filled with all kinds of tribulation. Awful things are gonna be happening. People are gonna be martyred. 
for, the, for not claiming the name of the beast and his number and all those things that go in there. And let me tell you this. Before you get to all that stuff on earth, you need to know what's going on in heaven. And the answer is he's on his throne. In fact, in our text, the very verse in the middle of our text said, and he, he saw him seated on his throne. That's only used twice in our text, in the Revelation, and it's before the tribulation and after the tribulation. You know why they're bookends? Here's the application tonight. Because the number one thing you need to see when American economy collapses, when we are at war with other countries, when you start being persecuted for being Christians because you're not saying the right pronouns or you're not willing to do this or that or say certain things, and you start losing your rights... And you see things begin to happen that begin to thank you more and more that we might be closer to the end. You know what you need to do? You need to be able to say, I glimpse heaven. I can look up to the throne room of God and say, look at the chaos around me. But God is still on the throne. And he still rules and he still reigns. Not surprising then in verse 1 that the new heaven and the new earth has come. And the first one has passed away. Again, a little Bible study note. Circle passed away in verse 1 because in the first half of this text, 1 through 4, it brackets it. See, it says, the first and earth has passed away. And in verse 4, it says that the former things have passed away. What are the former things? The new heaven and new earth. Because that little bracketing of using the same word, the first one, I should say the second one, explains the first one. And so he's going to tell you what is changing. What is happening from the transition from old new heavens and earth to the new one. And there are exciting things on here. And I'm going to get you to speak to it and a little feedback to me tonight if you'll think with me a little bit. He says, I I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, circle this coming down out of heaven from God. All right, ready? Put your Bible reading throughout your your unity of the Bible hat on, so to speak, tonight. You can start, and I would prefer it to be major ones, but if you can come up with any one, I'm okay with it. Start with Genesis, anywhere you want to go between there and Revelation. Tell me a story or an episode that took place where God came down from heaven to do something great in someone's life or in in Israel's life. Okay, and why I'm going to tell you up front why? Because I want you to see, as you read the Bible and you see this little phrase, it just says, oh, it's coming down from heaven to earth. That's not that nice. Well, no, because I want you to see that is the whole direction of God in the entire Bible from beginning to end. Since heaven and earth were separated in the garden because of Adam and Eve's sins, God has been working to put them back together. As at the end of the story, heaven and earth are united once again. And in between... Those two things is all that he's doing to bring that to pass. So we're going to hear about those stories. Craig, give me one. Speak really loud. In Genesis, talking about Adam and Eve, he came down and sacrificed an animal to cover their nakedness. Okay. So he came down and he clothed them, right? Because they tried to clothe themselves first, is which we always do. But, you know, when they clothe themselves, the next verse after that says, and they, were, they said, and they were naked. So even with the fig leaves on, they still considered themselves naked because they knew it wasn't clothing as God had designed for them. That's a good point. Yes, another event where God came down. Jacob's ladder. 
Perfect. Jacob's ladder. Give me the other end of Jacob's ladder. What happened? In, yes. What happened in the New Testament? What is the New Testament Jacob's ladder? It's the Jesus ladder. Tell me, do you remember what it is? Does anyone help? No? John 1? No one? Remember he told he said, remember he said, you think it's great that you've seen me do that. I could tell you that you were over there by the tree. Remember he told Nathaniel, oh, you're going to see greater things than this. Remember he says, you're going to see the heavens open and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. So then we learn this. In Jacob's story, the Jacob's ladder, what was the ladder? Jesus. Jesus is the ladder. See, here's how we get God comes down, gives us Jesus so that we can go up. And that is always the direction, him to us. Another episode, good ones. Yes? Excellent. Yeah. So in, uh, in Exodus, right? 34. Cammie? Was it um, when Abraham and God were making a covenant and he laid out the animals and then God passed through? Yes. God came down. And when you cut a covenant, that's how literally it was, cutting an animal in pieces, God made two rows of animals and had all of them were cut in half. And when you strike a covenant with someone, you have the one person walks through and then the other person walks through. And you walk through the, the animals, you are declaring this, that if I don't keep this covenant, may God do to me what he has done to these animals. And that was cut them in half. In that case, the rarity was God walked through the middle, but Abraham did not. Because the covenant was one-sided. God was going to keep it because Abraham couldn't, right? But God came down to show he has to come down to change our lives. Someone else. Those are good ones. Yes, Carl. Staying with Abraham, he came down and, uh, when Abraham was going to kill Isaac. Okay. God came down and told him to stop, right? Yep. Another, a picture of sacrifice, no? Jane. Yes, the burning bush. Keep going. How about, keep on Exodus for a minute in Moses. What about Exodus 20? You remember what that was, Tim? Yeah, Mount Sinai. Remember God came down on top of the mountain and they were so afraid because God says, if you touch the mountain, you will die. Right? What else? Any other ones? Tabernacle, temple, all those, right? Elisha and Mount Carmel. There's all kinds of them. How about Jesus? Did Jesus talk about him bringing heaven down? Did he ever say anything by the, like that in any of his speeches or words? Do you remember? You know he did. I wouldn't be asking you if he didn't, right? I'm setting you up, giving you time to think. What did he do? How about the feeding of the 5,000? What did he say about himself being the bread, the manna? What did he say was the difference between the manna that Moses gave and the manna that he was giving? Do you remember in John 6? Yes, Mike? Yes, I am the bread, what? Come down from heaven. 
right? So he came down. See how the manna fell? See the difference? The first manna was from Moses, and it fell from heaven. But he came down from heaven because he is it. It's just he's the personification of all those stories. Yes, Tim. Would you consider Jesus meeting Paul on the road to Damascus as a as a coming down? I would. That's another one. Okay, okay, we're really endless, aren't we? It's it's so many of them. But I wanted you to see that. And here's what the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Do you remember Jesus in Matthew six and his Sermon on the Mount? How he taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus was praying that we would live in the light of this future event, that we would know that heaven and earth will someday be united. His will is done that way, and he wants it to be done by us the same way. So he says in verse 1, those that passed away and the sea was no more, verse 1 says. No sea. Write down in our text, if you notice, there are three references that you would normally see as references to water or bodies of water. The one is the sea. At the end, there is, it's not made of water, but it's a term you would normally think of it as water, the lake of fire. So there's a sea at the beginning. There's a lake at the end. And in between, in the middle, there is the talk about the spring that will give you the water of life, right? So we're going to see the purposes and in, in, uh, what he uses water in our context. Yes? Interpretations of that a sea could be, is used poetically as a means of turmoil. And, um, You're right. Yes, that's, 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 that's where I'm headed exactly. It, it is. The sea, and I'll tell you, if you read Revelation, you'll find, and I wrote them all down, but I don't think it's necessary to share all of them per se, but... The sea are things that are evil. All of the evil characters, the beast, the false prophet, and numerous others, they all rise out of the sea. Um, That's in numerous places in Revelation 13, 17, 18, other places. They come out of the sea. So I, I think what it's saying is there is no more evil. And particularly, I would like to say there are no more evil people. And you can think about throughout history all the evil people in our world. All of those things will not be allowed. In fact, if we have time, and it doesn't look like we're going to, um, next week, per se, we'll come back maybe to finish. But there are things inside the city, and in chapter 22 and verse 17, there are things outside the city. And what is mainly outside the city are people. In fact, you can see it, the people in the lake of fire. Um, that's what's outside the city. I don't know exactly what that means. Um, outside the city. I have my ideas, but I'm not really sure. The Bible isn't really clear on that sketch of what it really is about. Some people have said that there's no more water, therefore there can't be any more flood. Like in Noah's day, therefore he's saying there's no more judgment anymore because it's all been taken care of. Some people say that in in Revelation that the trading from country to country was about the economic problems and things like that, and the water represents mercantile trade and so forth, and that there won't be any need of that anymore because God will provide for everyone. So there's various reasons or different views on that, um, but that's what most people look at it as. Number Verse number two says, And I heard, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and then it says, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Question, why is the holy city in the new creation, the new heaven, new earth, why is it likened to a bride? If you're looking for answers to questions in, in the in book of Revelation, you won't find them unless you are steeped heavily in the Old Testament. <laughs> There's more allusions to almost any book of the Bible in the Old Testament than any other. And you usually will find the answer, at least to some degree, or a start to the answer by knowing the Old Testament that it's referring to. Yes? Very good. Very good. Unfaithful white, harlot, right. So that's what she is normally characterized by. And here it's a bride. But this bride is adorned, and it's not part of our text tonight in verse 9. And she's beautiful, she's pure, she's clean. And there's a big emphasis all the way through these two chapters about the new Jerusalem, the city being undefiled. All the things that would have defiled her and corrupted her. In fact, there's a number of times in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and uh, they talk about Israel as being horribly defiled and corrupted. And so the fact that this has changed is mean that God has made a, a huge change in what's going on inside this city compared to the one on earth. So he says, adorned or prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I saw, I saw, verse 3, I heard. I heard a loud voice, usually an angel, um, from the throne. It could be God saying, behold, the place of God is with man and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be them as their God. The bride illustration is that, and the verses 2 and 3 work together because all of that is covenant language. When you get married, you are making a covenant. The dwelling with God and God dwelling with them. And I want to say this to you a couple things and we'll be done for tonight. When God says, I will dwell with them and they will be my people, it's really peoples, plural. Um, And they should have it that way, actually. It's peoples, meaning... And the Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament. But in the final stage that goes into all eternity, it will be peoples. And Jews will be part of it because there are 12 tribes and 12 apostles, you know, on the 12 gates, which means Israel's still going to be the source of blessing to all the nations like God said they would. But they will not be the only ones considered people of God. All the nations will be, which means there's a lot of things that get changed when you go into eternity. You'll get a new body, and you'll get all kinds of other things. But what doesn't change is your ethnicity. Ethnicity will be eternal. And uh, God will celebrate 5, 9, and 7, 9, that there will be someone from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation around his throne, worshiping him, serving him forever. That's why I love to say Faith Baptist Church on Sunday mornings is just a rehearsal for eternity because that's what God has designed. His story purposely and intentionally has sought that. So much so that it cost Jesus' blood to purchase it. And so in eternity, there will be a covenant thing going on. All eternity. That we will be faithful to God. He will be faithful to us. Now let me tell you and I'll close. Covenant language shows intimacy. God wants you to know how much he loves you. And how close you will be to him. And he does it using bride language, wedding language, 
and covenant language, you will be able to be intimate, if I can say that with a godly way, you'll be intimate and close to God in a way that you have never experienced in this world. Um, it'll be something that, and I, I was trying to think with Pastor Dave today in the office, what in the world does that mean? Um, I don't think it's per se, although I think it's maybe somewhat, that there'll be some sort of literal geographical proximity. I mean, I think that you will actually be with Jesus. I was asking him today, if I believe that seemingly the, the, uh, new heaven, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth, which I believe the earth will be one big country, if you want, it's one country, and there's be a capital. And I think the new Jerusalem will be the capital. Does that mean I get to see Jesus every day? I, I don't know I've, if we'll get to see him personally every day. But there won't be any sun or moon, so his presence... His glory presence will radiate the entire planet. So in one sense, I will get to experience his presence every day. Does that mean I get to visually see him? And I mean, does Jesus have time to have coffee with everyone who's in the new heaven every single day? I don't know if that, how that works like that. Um, but I'm hoping that I at least get it once or twice in there a few times. But, um, but nevertheless, I mean, it's going to be a way that we've never, ever been close to him before. And I don't know all that that means, but I'm looking forward to finding out, not, not tomorrow, but, but soon enough, right? So I'm looking forward to that. I, I hope you are. And so what does that help us do? Can I tell you that there's nothing that you're facing tonight. We didn't even get to verse 4 because I was going to have you tell some stories tonight, and we will next week. I love the phrase, you know what it means when you're close to God? Here's what it means in a way you've never before. I think verse 4 helps me a little bit. It says there's no more death. In other words, I'll never feel like maybe he's not there. I'll never feel that again. I'll know he's always there. I won't be any division or separation. You know, the only separation in the new heavens and the earth will be between the insiders and the outsiders, between the people in the new heaven, New Jerusalem, and people who are in the lake of fire. That's the final division. In other words, there won't be any more divisions anymore. There won't be any conflicts anymore. So I'll feel unity with him and with everyone else in a way that I can't even fathom here. It'll be there. There'll be no more pain There'll be no one. So you know what it means to be with God? It means I'll be happier than I've ever been. I mean happier than I've ever been. There won't be crying. I won't be sad. There won't be pain. You know, did you think about it tonight? Maybe you didn't. I just did because I knew I was doing this lesson. Did you think about all the people tonight who are crying and then the pain they're going through with sicknesses and surgeries and loss of loved ones, they'll never have that again. They'll never be that. We won't pray for anyone who's sick ever again. Won't that be awesome? <laughs> never. We'll never say, hey, at Faith Baptist Church on this side of the new heavens and earth over here, oh, we're having a funeral today. We'll never, ever say that again. Never. We won't be sorrowful. Never again. It's going to be something, isn't it? Can that not help get you through anything you face? I mean, is that not a future that could help you out? I wish we had the time that I could tell you stories of church history, of people who gave their lives in incredibly awful ways. And the words on their lips as they were being burned at the stake 
was they'd look forward to seeing Jesus and to be in the new heavens and new earth. That's what they were looking forward to. Can I tell you this? We have a living hope. We do. We have a living hope. And it's not just to be pushed off to the sweet by and by down the road. It's to be experienced by faith now, today, and every day. Will you do it? Will you help others do it? We need to. We need to do it together because that truth is coming soon. Amen? Let's pray. Ah, Father, what a wonderful text. What a bright future. Father, I pray that you'll help us in the present to be impacted by the future. That we will see things differently in the present because we know that we have an inheritance. That we know that there is a place reserved for us. That we know that we will not be in the lake of fire. We will be conquerors through the one who loved us so. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see that beautiful vision of the future, that it may make us usable here on earth for your glory and the good of others. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. You are dismissed.